Open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah, of course, is the largest of the minor prophets, two books to the left of Matthew. Zechariah chapter 7. We'll begin this morning by reading our text, verses 8 through 14. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Now last week, we began this second section of the book of Zechariah. If you remember Zechariah, we've said can be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 to 6 would be the eight night visions. In one night, God sending eight visions to Zechariah to encourage and to call the people to renewed faithfulness and repentance, to promise judgment on their enemies. Chapter 7 to 8 is one question, four answers. You remember the people of Bethel send a delegation to Jerusalem, to the priests and the prophets. So good so far. And they want to know, can we cease fasting in the months that we fast. You see that in chapter 7, just in the first three verses. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislei. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemmelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month if I've done for so many years? Now that's their question. And God is going to give a four-part answer. And we see that structure from, look in verse 4, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. And so last week we looked at the first answer. This week, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Look at how chapter 8 begins. The word of the Lord of hosts came. And then all the way down in verse 18 of chapter 8, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. So God's got a fourfold answer to this question. Chapter 7 and 8, one question, four answers. And then chapters 9 through 14 are the two burdens of the word of the Lord. Called that because of the introductory formula found in chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And in chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the Lord concerning Israel. In chapters 8, 9 through 14 are largely, almost entirely, eschatological, prophetic. They will deal, when we get there, with the battle of Armageddon, the bringing in of the kingdom, Israel's national repentance and faith in their Messiah. But now, we are in chapter 7 and 8, 
dealing with this question. And to set the backdrop, last week we talked about these fasts. Now, the Old Testament only commands one fast, and that is the Day of Atonement. But the Israelites had invented, had created these, these fasts. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with inventing um, religious worship. After all, we've done that. Nowhere in the Bible is the celebration of Christmas prescribed, or Easter even. There's nothing wrong with us setting apart those days to honor the Lord um, as long as, and we'll see, we're doing the other things he wants us to do. So Israel, in response to the captivity, had set aside certain days in the months to fast and to weep and to abstain, to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem, the breaching of their walls, the assassination of Gedidiah. And they had been doing this for 70 years in Babylon. And now they're doing it through the rebuilding project. And now we're halfway through the rebuilding project. We are two years away from the completion of the rebuilding project. And it becomes clear that as, these, the, their, their, as their fortunes are reversing, as the walls are going up, as the temple is being built, the people, hey, can we stop looking back to what we were commiserating and can we get excited about this new temple? So they come, it seems like a valid question. And yet God's answer reveals a whole lot more going on in their lives and in their hearts. And, and last week we saw that his answer was by way of asking them three questions. Did, did you ever really fast for me? Were you sorry that you had sinned against me or were you sorry that you lost your stuff? In other words, were you sorry over the sin itself and the effect it had on your relationship with me, the Lord says, or were you only sorry about the consequences? And then he asks them, when you eat and when you drink, when you're not fasting, is it for me that you eat and drink? Really, how much of your life is focused on me versus yourself? And then the final question he asks them is, the former prophets, the words that the Lord proclaimed, did they not come to pass? Did you ever really listen to my prophets? And, And with those rhetorical questions, the assumed answer is, at best, not very much. Right? And so what God said last week is, look, if you think somehow you're getting some spiritual change in your spiritual bank account, and if, if we just fast and pray long enough that the bank account will raise, and then God won't be angry anymore, and then we can stop. Phew. You got it all wrong. You, you, we don't perform religious ritual to appease God. That's a pagan notion. The pagan notion is you do things, you engage in rituals and rites, or you perform good works, whatever it is, and you manipulate the God. And, and you make him happy, and you invite his favor. The reason why Israelites were, were, were offering their children to Molech is in the Canaanite religions, that was the way you got Molech to make it rain or to, or to give you kids. There's a sort of tit for tat. I do this, and the God responds. And, and they're, they're approaching God that way. And God says, that's, that's not how it works. I'm after your heart, and I know your motives. And it's not as simple as, oh, they're fasting. Well, I'll bless them. I, God can see why they're fasting or why they're not fasting. So this week, the second part of the message, and we don't know how much time delay there was between these messages. I suspect not very much. There's no time references. So the first part of the answer was given. The second part really expands upon that last question. Remember the last question from last week was, did you ever listen really to the former prophets, the prophets that I sent to you? And this week, 
The, the, the passage is easily divided into three sections. God will rehearse what the former prophets had said, what Isaiah had said, what Jeremiah had said to the people before the calamity, before the, the capture and the deportation. Then we'll look at the people's refusal, their response. So God sent prophets with a message. We'll look at that. Then we'll look at the people's response and refusal. Finally, God's anger and the, and the implied point of all of this recounting of Israel's history is for the audience of Zechariah's day and for us to learn from past judgment. That's what we're to do. We're to learn lessons from past judgment. This will be a history lesson that's meant to be instructive. So let's dive in the prophet's warnings. Verses 8 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. Notice no commands about fasting. What God had called them to was, was two things, to do and two things not to do. The first, render true judgments. This is justice. This is the potential. And what we're going to see, really, is this is about the society and justice in, in the land, among the people. The potential of the rich to oppress the poor, for justice to be perverted, for bribes to be taken. He says, render true judgments. And this was a common call of the prophets in the Old Testament. We won't look through them now. But a common refrain, that the Lord cares about such things. I mean, isn't it good to know God cares about justice on this earth? Render true judgments. And remember kindness and mercy. Now that word for kindness is elsewhere in the Bible translated, at least in the ESV, steadfast love. And it's that Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant, loyal, faithful love. And what God is saying in these two positives is he wants Israel, and he wants us, to model his character. Justice mingled or tempered with kindness and mercy. Justice mingled with gospel love and mercy. That was what Israel was called to do. We know that their fathers did not heed this call. Negatively, um, there's also something they're not to do. And it's really two sides of the same coin. You are to render true judgments. You're not to oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. And And what all of these categories have in common is these are the weak, the powerless, the marginalized, the exposed, the vulnerable in the Israeli society. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, the foreigner, and the poor. And God is concerned about them. One of the things you see again and again in Scripture is God's concern for the weak, God's concern for the powerless. That is his heart. And the New Testament tells us we were all weak and powerless. While we were still weak, he sent Christ for us. I've said this before. There's no one who is too weak to be saved. There are many who are too strong. And God's concern was that Israel would render justice, remember kindness and mercy, not oppress, not oppress the weak and the poor, and not to devise evil against your brother in your heart. What was happening as Israel became prosperous and corrupt is the rich were oppressing the poor. Brothers were plotting evil against brothers. Justice was being perverted. 
It's popular in our day to talk about social justice and depending on what you mean by it, it's a good thing. If what you mean by it is we need to make sure our courts are not being corrupted, we need to make sure justice is being done. We need to have a heart that's compassionate for the poor, the weak, the powerless, the needy. Amen and amen. I sadly think frequently social justice is meant to mean social Marxism, but that is another message for another time. But God is concerned about these things. We should be concerned about these things. That was the message of the former prophets. Let's see now the people's sad refusal. Verses 11 through 12. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And what we get here is a terrible and frightening progression of unbelief and apostasy. You get sort of the overarching statement of what happened in verse 11. They refused to pay attention. And then through three steps, he tells you how it is they did it. Three successive steps using different word pictures. The first, they turned a stubborn shoulder. This is in a, a picture of a mule or a donkey. You're trying to put the yoke on it, and it is, it is flexing its muscles. It is not submitting. It's being stubborn. What happened initially is they stopped obeying. They heard things from God's word they didn't want to hear. Calls to do things they didn't want to do, and they shrugged it off. They shrugged it off. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the first step. Next word picture, they stopped their ears. It's, it's a picture of taking some substance, you know, mud or something, and putting it in your ears. Or you can easily picture a child putting their fingers in their ears so they can't hear you. Well, why would you do that? Well, because initially you're not obeying, but you're convicted. And every time you hear God's commandments, and every time you hear God's word, you're, you're struck and you're cut So what's the next step? Stop hearing God's word. I don't want to hear the thing that makes me feel bad. So they stopped their ears. First they stopped obeying, then they stopped listening. And then we get to this frightful statement. They made their hearts diamond hard. Now remember, biblically, the heart is more than just your emotions. Um, it's certainly not more than intuition. Those are the two senses that our culture tends to use heart today. Follow your heart as an in intuition or I love you with all my heart. But the heart is the seat of the will, the affections, desires. And what this means is they intentionally hardened their heart, their affection, their will, their desires towards the living God to a diamond hard status. First they stopped obeying then they stopped listening, and finally, they utterly stopped caring. That's frightening. To intentionally make your own heart so hard that God's word no longer pricks and cuts. You see, once you've decided, I'm just going to do what I want to do, then why would you want to hear something that makes you feel bad? Once you've decided, I'm going to do what I want to do, I don't care. I don't care. The next step is, and we know this, we read our Bible a little less and a little less because after all, God's word is, you know, convicting. Then finally, you get to the scary point where even God's word no longer can penetrate. The heart is hard. The will is dead. The New Testament speaks of consciences that are seared. The nerve endings deadened. that's, That's what the fathers did. No wonder then we move on to the Lord's anger. 
12c through 14. It's no surprise how God responded. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And now we get three judgments. We have this overarching statement, God is angry, just as we have the overarching statement, verse 11, they refuse to pay attention, and in each case, a following description of what that looks like. God became angry, in what way? As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. There's an ironic justice to this consequence. God called. How did he call? He sent prophets. He sent his word again and again and again. Will you not listen? Will you not listen? When people hardened their hearts, they, they stopped their ears. And yet we know that as Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem, many cries went up to God for help. Now, I want to clarify one thing. God shut out their prayers. But had any of the Israelites had a broken spirit, a contrite heart, or repentant prayers, he would have heard. But these are prayers of help or stop the armies, Lord. They're not, they still haven't dealt with their sin. And just as sinful people cannot stand before the living God, so unrepentant people's prayers, they, they bounce off the ceiling. God had formally entered into a covenant with Israel where they would be his people. He would be their God. They would call on him. And now he says, I called on them and I called on them and I called on them. They refused to listen. And then when Nebuchadnezzar's army showed up and the walls were breached, oh, they were calling on me then. And I refused to listen. He ignored their prayers. It's frightening. He ignored their prayers. Second, I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. He scattered their people. And again, being part of the church, which has no geographic center, which is a transnational community that extends beyond geographic borders, it can be hard for us to understand the significance of this. But from God's first call of Abraham, there is this promise of land, the land, the land, the land. I'm going to take you to the land. And at Sinai, this, this ragamuffin people coming out of Egypt enter into a covenant with God and they receive a law that tells them how the land's going to be governed. They get the blueprints, as it were, of a civil government. And they're in the desert and they've got to be excited. This land, this land, this land. What's it going to look like? How's it going to be? And they get there. And within three kings, the land is torn in half. And all you get is... All you get for the unified kingdom is Saul, David, and Solomon. And then they're taken off the land. He scattered the peoples. And finally, thus they led the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro. The pleasant land was made desolate. So he ignored their prayers. He scattered their peoples. He desolated their land. Notice in this is the undoing or at the very least, the discipline in reference to all three of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. What did God promise Abraham? I'll be your God and I'll give you a seed. I'll give you a people and I'll give you a land what happens here? I stop listening and I'll scatter the peoples and I'll let the land languish. This judgment strikes at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. 
And the good news is, as we see in chapter 8, the Lord will return to and fulfill his promises to Abraham, and all three of these upheavals will be righted. But that was God's judgment, and they shouldn't have missed it. All the things he promised Abraham, he was withholding from them because of their wickedness, because of their sin. He ignored their prayers, he scattered their peoples, and he desolated their land. And I've saved most of my time here for the lesson from us, for us here. What, what are we to get from this? I mean, after all, Zechariah is recounting this to people who this didn't even happen to, right? He's just telling them what happened to their forefathers. He's just telling them what happened to their parents and their grandparents 70-odd years ago or more. Which brings us to, to five points of application. Five points of application. The first is this. True worship requires true repentance and faith. True worship requires true repentance and faith. This ties back to the the context that this answer is given, to their question. We're doing this religious ritual, liturgical thing. We're fasting. Should we stop? Have we done it enough? And, And God says, you haven't done it at all. Moreover, that wasn't really what I was focused on. I talked last week about how it's become very popular to, to talk about Christianity being a relationship and not a religion. I think the reason why that pendulum has swung so heavily that way is because in so many cases, kids or people grow up where, where people go to church and they do their ritual and they help out in Awana and, they, and they, they do their thing, they turn the crank, and yet just as in Zechariah's day, the heart is not in it, those things are not being done for the Lord. And so people then sort of swing knee-jerk away from religion to relationship. And it's true that all, all, of, our, all of our worship service needs to be founded upon a heart of, of repentance and faith. Now, it, it is a religion and it is a relationship. It's both. James commends true and undefiled religion. But, but we've got to get these pieces together. Both are important. What we don't want is a dead formalism. We go through the motions. We stand up. We sit down. We stand up. We sit down. We sing a song. We listen to a message. We go home. We have lunch. Check. I'm a good little Christian. And we don't want the other side, which all that matters is my heart. And the church, optional. Christian fellowship, optional. Obedience, that sounds like legalism. Optional. We, we want both coming together rightly. Um, Francis Chan gives an illustration of this that I find helpful and I think we could relate to. He he talks about how, I'm sure many of you used to play the game Simon Says as a child. And you know how Simon Says works. There's a leader and Simon Says stand up and everyone stands up and Simon Says stand on one foot and you stand on one foot and Simon Says, you know, put your foot down and, and he goes on. And he says, but frequently in the Christian walk, Jesus Says is played very differently. Oh, I'm standing up in my heart I'm, I'm standing on one foot in my, I'm loving the poor in my heart. And, and obedience becomes optional. Um, the Lord was very clear what he wanted. Justice, true judgments, kindness. These are practical commands. The call of the former promise was very practical. Um, and even, even my children know better than to try this. And you get this, right? You send your kids to their room. You say, go clean your room. Don't come back to your room is clean. And you, and you go check on them. 45 minutes later, the room is absolutely untouched. And you, you say, what happened? And your child says, I wrote you a song. 
Now that, that, that may for some of us be weak enough that we go, okay, but, but really, have they done what we asked them to do? No, I asked you to clean your room. Well, well, we wrote a song for you, or we, we did this for you. you know, and, and you can make it more like the church, right? You go to your room. Did you clean your room? No, but I've memorized what you said. I, I, memorized, I wrote it on the wall. In Greek. And I've got, some, I've got some other kids, toddlers, coming over this morning. I'm going to do a Bible study to discuss what it might look like if I cleaned my room. Right? <laughs> and they have to come together. God wants them to do these fasts for him. He wants them to eat for him. He wants their hearts of faith towards him. And then he wants them to do what he said. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. And so the question for us then is, is our gathering on Sunday morning authentic? Is it real? Is it built upon a, a heart of faith? Heart of repentance, or is it a way of checking a box? Is our helping out Nawana? Is our going to small groups? Whatever it is you do, and those are good things. They're good things. Last week we took the Lord's table, communion. It's a good thing. It's a ritual. It's excellent. When done, built upon a heart of faith. Just like Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And two verses later, David's talking about giving bulls and real sacrifices. But only after he gets his heart right. The danger, of course, is hypocrisy. The danger is self-deception. I, I do the right things. I go to the service. I stand up. I sit down. I sing the songs. I give in the offering. I, I take communion. I'm set. Nope. Conversely, you don't get to say, my heart loves Jesus, so church and all that stuff, who cares? They got to come together. They have got to come together. Secondly, secondly, God's word to them is his word to us. God's word to them is his word to us. Now keep your finger in in Zechariah, but turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. This is a, a, a crucial passage the Apostle Paul about the value of the Old Testament. But even before we look at 1 Corinthians 10, we get it from Zechariah. What Zechariah is doing, get this, he is recounting what former prophets said to different people. And the assumption is that there is value for the audience of Zechariah's day to be told what God said to other people and what they did and what he did in response. What this passage does is it recounts God sending prophets, the people responding, God sending judgment. And the, and the audience of Zechariah's day does not say, well, what does that have to do with us? We didn't do that. No, the assumption, the implication is learn from it. There is value in reading the history of what God said to other people, what they did and what he did. And, and Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's look at verses 6 through 13. He's describing the exodus, the people testing God in the wilderness. Now look at this remarkable statement in verse 16. These things took place. Get that. They occurred as examples for us. You ever read the Old Testament and wonder, why on earth would God let the Israelites be so stupid? The answer might be, because Jeremy needs to see what Jeremy's like. He needs a good example to illustrate himself. These things took, they happened for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
nor be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now look at 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. The Old Testament is for Christians. They happened for Christians. The events of the Old Testament took place for the church. They were written down for the church. That's why there's value in studying Zechariah. There's value in going and recounting these events, even the calamities and the tragedies. God is rehearsing to the audience of Zechariah's day the very negative experience of him sending prophets, the people not listening, and God sending judgment with a positive purpose to to warn and instruct the people of Zechariah's day and to warn and instruct us. These things apply to us. He goes on, therefore, these things are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you're reading through Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers and your conclusion is, man, those Israelites are knuckleheads. Man, those people are stupid. Take heed. Take heed. That is not the proper response. The response is not to make us feel so good because, man, I never would have done that. The proper response is to get you on your guard If anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's nothing that you're dealing with that they weren't dealing with, and there's nothing they weren't dealing with that you won't deal with. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So God's word to them is his word to us. We see that through Zechariah quoting former events for people of his day, and that means there's, there's application for us. This is written for us. These things happened for us. So then we need to learn the lessons for us. Number three, how we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. How we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. God is greatly concerned with how we treat our neighbor. The first commandment deals with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your being. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the outflow, the demonstration of our love for God is the love for neighbor. It's really easy to work yourself up into a passion, to get excited and conclude, I love God. How do you know you love God? Because I was weeping today during worship. As we were singing, tears are flowing down. I have never felt that close to God As my mom would say, that's as may be. How are you treating your neighbor? How how is your obedience? Listen listen to 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The closest thing you're going to get to seeing the living God today is the person sitting next to you who bears his image. And so it's easy to talk a good game and to feel a good game about how much I love God. Well, let's take the the, the people that bear his image and see how you interact with them, John says. Because if you say loudly, vociferously in song, I love you, I love you, I love you, 
and then you can't use a civil tongue to your neighbor, you don't love God. You're a liar, First John says. James puts it this way in 3 verse 9, talking about the tongue. Our tongues are restless evil. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. How we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. Especially when it comes to the weak, powerless, and destitute. Um, as, as a community of believers, the poor, the weak, the struggling, the infirm should be safe here. Should be safe here. Apparently, as Israel's prosperity was beginning to return, so were some of the old habits, some of the old sins were starting to poke their head up again. And God reminds Israel, don't, don't go down that road. Don't go, this, this is what led to the deportation. How we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. Then point D. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Now, if there's anything that struck me in this passage upon first studying, it was that terrifying progression of the Israelites, of, of being stubborn to obey and not listening and, and not caring. Would, would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews? Keep your thumb in, in, in Zechariah, but turn to Hebrews. We're going to look at a couple passages in Hebrews. Because when we read about what they did, we might think, well, surely Christians can't do that. Surely Christians can't do that. But everything the Israelites did here, we are warned in the New Testament not to do. While you turn to, to Hebrews, just think of the phrase in Matthew 18, what do you do if your brother sins? You show him his fault. And, and if he doesn't listen to you, this notion of li- refusing to listen, it's a New Testament problem as well as an Old Testament problem. Do not harden your heart. But, but look at this warning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Though I was provoked with that generation and said, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest Then the application for us from Hebrews, take care, brothers, or be on your guard, or be vigilant, be alert, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And, and that same progression is a danger for us. You know, and, and we gotta ask ourselves this. I gotta ask you this. Are there things in your life that you know God doesn't want you to do? That you've been stubborn? That as, as his word and his spirit try to call you to obedience, you, you shake it off. And you shake it off like that stubborn mule. Well, be, be very careful. Be very careful. The next step, then, of course, is to stop listening. Well, surely that's not a problem for Christians. Listen to our, what we've studied previously in 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Oh, there's a great danger of stopping to listening. So, so first you start by, I don't really want to do that. What God's calling me to do is going to be costly or I want to do something else. And then you, you, you put your fingers in yours. I'm not going to listen to the scriptures that call me to obedience. I'm not, I see this happen all the time. I'm not going to listen to my friends and brothers and sisters in the church who are calling me to obey. Get this, you will always be able to find someone who will back you up and agree that your decision is right, especially with the internet. I mean, Facebook will have a forum dedicated to justifying the thing you want to do. You will have no problem finding people to back you up in what you want to do. If you have itching ears, you will find people, you will have no difficulty in finding people who will say, no, that sounds reasonable to me. Sure. Be careful when you find yourself stopping listening to the word, stopping listening to the church, and then be very careful of the final step, the diamond hard heart. And the picture here is a heart now that is so hardened, the, the word cannot penetrate it. Isn't that frightening? That a person would willfully, intentionally, it's not done to them, they do it to themselves. They hardened their heart till they became diamond hard. Surely that isn't something we can do. It's exactly what Hebrews 3 is calling us not to do. Don't harden your hearts. Turn a few chapters in Hebrews to the terrifying example of Esau in Hebrews 12. Again, an Old Testament example being reiterated to the church for the church's instruction. You can get to a point where you are unable to repent. We are unable to soften your heart. You have hardened it. It is set. Verse 6, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually impure or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, verse 17, here it is. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Be careful. Be careful, the writer of Hebrews says. See to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one's like Esau. I'll I'll sin now and I'll repent later. Maybe you won't be able to. Maybe your heart will finally achieve diamond Density. That's, that's the warning here. This progression of stubbornness. I don't really want to do that. And I don't really want to listen to the people and the scriptures that tell me to do that. And you know what? I don't even care anymore. That, that's the most frightening place to be. If, if you now are at the point where you can hear God's word and expose your sin and it just washes over you, that is a terrifying place to be. And if that's where you are, you need to get on your knees and call upon the living God to, to take a jackhammer of his word by his spirit, to your heart. And that's the warning. Do not harden your heart. Finally, final, final thing to learn from this passage. The Lord will discipline those he loves. Back to Hebrews 12. The Lord will discipline those he loves. God loves Israel. In the very next chapter, he reestates his love, his return, his zeal for them. So God's discipline to Israel must be seen as the discipline to the one whom he loves. 
And again, we, we can get thought in Christianity with, with these platitudes and half-truths that you know, God, God always thinks you're a little sunbeam. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less, which is true if what you mean to say is there is nothing I can do that makes God more or less committed to conforming me to the image of his son and bringing me to glory. And it's absolutely true. There's nothing you or I can do to make God more or less committed to, to bringing you to glory, to making you persevere, to conforming you to the image of his son, to bringing you to him in heaven. Nothing you or I can do. There is plenty we can do to invite his displeasure, which is why Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. So if by love you mean his active or pleasure or his displeasure, oh, absolutely there are things we can do to raise or lower that. When Stephen is stoned and Jesus is standing to receive him, the father was pleased. The son was pleased. And there are things we can do that bring on God's displeasure. The Lord will discipline those he loves. Again, Hebrews 12, quoting, again, you hope you pick this up, the value of the Old Testament, quoting Proverbs. This time, the author of Hebrews quotes the Proverbs and applies it to the church. Starting in verse five. Oh, let's start in verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have partaken, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God absolutely disciplines Christians. Yes, your sins are forgiven at the cross. That does not mean God does not deal with and discipline his children. Hebrews is emphatic on this point. Hebrews is emphatic on this point. Well, surely you say he won't do what he did here. I mean, he ignored their prayers after all. What what does 1 Peter say? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel since they are heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Implication, if I'm not loving my wife the way God wants me to, if I say, that's not for me, my prayers might be bouncing off the ceiling. Yeah, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his way of dealing with sin and his judgments continue. He scattered the people. Well, we don't have a geographic center, so surely he can't do that. Listen to the warning given to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, do the works you did at first, or I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Get that. The, the living Christ says, if you guys don't get on board and start obeying, I will scatter and disperse your church. 
Just take it away. Oh yeah, the New Testament echoes all of these types of things. Now, now the author of Hebrews tells us, if you're sitting here and you, you, you are beginning to suspect that perhaps the Lord is disciplining you, the author of Hebrews says two things. One, you, rejoice, you're a son. That's good news. I, I probably get, never get more nervous than when I feel like I should be receiving discipline and I'm not. Because I remember, if you're left out of discipline, you're not a son. But the second thing, and this is, I think, the point for the people of Zechariah's day, is when disciplined, don't grumble. Don't stiffen your neck. The, the, the fathers of, of Zechariah's audience, they were only sad over the consequence. Remember, they were fasting and feasting, not for the Lord, but for what they lost, their prestige, their temple, their land. The, the, the judgment never brought them to repentance. It didn't cause them to mourn the relationship with the Lord. And if, if you feel you are under the Lord's discipline, don't, don't despise it. Don't get angry at him. Draw near to him. If you feel like your prayers have been bouncing off the ceiling, if your prayers are those of repentance and faith, they will always get to him. I'm going to call the worship team up now. Our, our final song pleads with God to soften our hearts, to use his word to reach us, to change us, that he would do the work only he can do, that he could make us care. If you're here today and your heart is dull and you've stopped listening, you've stopped your Bible reading, sing this song sincerely. Call upon God to, to move with his word and with his spirit. And remember, it, we've got to go deeper than just doing what God wants us to do. We've got to get down to the point where we love him, where we care for him. And for that, we need God to show us his son, Jesus Christ, in his word. Please stand.